0: Section 9 of Self Help. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Self Help with Illustrations of Conduct and Perseverance by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 4 Application and Perseverance, Part 1. Rich are the diligent. Who can command time, nature's stock, and could his hourglass fall, would, as for seat of stars, stoop for the sand, and by incessant labor gather all. Davenant. Allez en avant, et la foi vous viendra. D'Alembert. The greatest results in life are usually attained by simple means, and the exercise of ordinary qualities. The common life of every day, with its cares, necessities, and duties, affords ample opportunity for acquiring experience of the best kind, and its most beaten paths provide the true worker with abundant scope for effort and room for self-improvement. The road of human welfare lies along the old highway of steadfast well-doing, and they who are the most persistent and work in the truest spirit will usually be the most successful. Fortune has often been blamed for her blindness, but fortune is not so blind as men are, those who look into practical life will find that fortune is usually on the side of the industrious, as the winds and waves are on the side of the best navigators. In the pursuit of even the highest branches of human inquiry, the commoner qualities are found the most useful, such as common sense, attention, application, and perseverance. Genius may not be necessary, though even genius of the highest sort does not disdain the use of these ordinary qualities the very greatest men have been among the least believers in the power of genius and as worldly wise and persevering as successful men of the commoner sort some have even defined genius to be only common sense intensified a distinguished teacher and president of a college spoke of it as the power of making efforts john foster held it to be the power of lighting one's own fire buffon said of genius it is patience Newton's was unquestionably a mind of the very highest order, and yet, when asked by what means he had worked out his extraordinary discoveries, he modestly answered, by always thinking unto them. At another time he thus expressed his method of study. I keep the subject continually before me, and wait until the first dawnings open slowly, by little and little, into a full and clear light. It was in newton's case as in every other only by diligent application and perseverance that his great reputation was achieved even his recreation consisted in change of study laying down one subject to take up another to dr bentley he said if i have done the public any service it is due to nothing but industry and patient thought so kepler another great philosopher speaking of his studies and his progress said as in virgil FAMA MOBILITATE VIGET, VIRUS ACQUIRIT IENDO. So it is with me that the diligent thought on these things was the occasion of still further thinking, until at last I brooded with the whole energy of my mind upon the subject. The extraordinary results effected by dint of sheer industry and perseverance have led many distinguished men to doubt whether the gift of genius be so exceptional an endowment as it is usually supposed to be. Thus Voltaire held that it is only a very slight line of separation that divides the man of genius from the man of ordinary mold. Beccaria was even of opinion that all men might be poets and orators, and Reynolds that they might be painters and sculptors. If this were really so, that stolid Englishman might not have been so very far wrong, after all, who, on Canova's death, inquired of his brother whether it was his intention to carry on the business locke helvetius and diderot believed that all men have an equal aptitude for genius and that what some are able to effect under the laws which regulate the operations of the intellect must also be within the reach of others who under like circumstances apply themselves to like pursuits but while admitting to the fullest extent the wonderful achievements of labor and recognizing the fact that men of the most distinguished genius have invariably been found the most indefatigable workers it must nevertheless be sufficiently obvious that without the original endowment of heart and brain no amount of labor however well applied could have produced a shakespeare a newton a beethoven or a michelangelo dalton the chemist repudiated the notion of his being a genius attributing everything which he had accomplished To simple industry and accumulation john hunter said of himself my mind is like a beehive but full as it is of buzz and apparent confusion it is yet full of order and regularity and food collected with incessant industry from the choicest stores of nature we have indeed but to glance at the biographies of great men to find that the most distinguished inventors artists thinkers and workers of all kinds owe their success in a great measure to their indefatigable industry and application. They were men who turned all things to gold, even time itself. Disraeli the elder held that the secret of success consisted in being master of your subject, such mastery being attainable only through continuous application and study. Hence it happens that the men who have most moved the world have not been so much men of genius, strictly so called, as men of intense mediocre abilities and untiring perseverance not so often the gifted of naturally bright and shining qualities as those who have applied themselves diligently to their work in whatsoever line that might lie alas said a widow speaking of her brilliant but careless son he is not the gift of continuance wanting in perseverance such volatile natures are outstripped in the race of life by the diligent and even the dull Cheva va piano va longano e valontano, says the Italian proverb, who goes slowly, goes long, and goes far. Hence, a great point to be aimed at is to get the working quality well trained. When that is done, the race will be found comparatively easy. We must repeat and again repeat. Facility will come with labor. Not even the simplest art can be accomplished without it, and what difficulties it is found capable of achieving. It was by early discipline and repetition that the late Sir Robert Peel cultivated those remarkable, though still mediocre, powers which rendered him so illustrious an ornament of the British Senate. When a boy at Drayton Manor, his father was accustomed to set him up at table to practise speaking extempore, and he early accustomed him to repeat as much of the Sunday sermon as he could remember. Little progress was made at first. But by steady perseverance, the habit of attention became powerful, and the sermon was at length repeated almost verbatim. When afterwards, replying in succession to the arguments of his parliamentary opponents, an art in which he was perhaps unrivaled, it was little surmised that the extraordinary power of accurate remembrance which he displayed on such occasions had been originally trained under the discipline of his father in the parish church of Drayton. It is indeed marvelous what continuous application will affect in the commonest of things. It may seem a simple affair to play upon a violin, yet what a long and laborious practice it requires. Giardini said to a youth who asked him how long it would take to learn it, twelve hours a day for twenty years together. Industry, it is said, fait leurs danser. The poor figurante must devote years of incessant toil to her profitless task before she can shine in it. When Taglioni was preparing herself for her evening exhibition, she would, after a severe two-hours lesson from her father, fall down exhausted and had to be undressed, sponged, and resuscitated, totally unconscious. The agility and bounds of the evening were insured only at a price like this. Progress, however, of the best kind, is comparatively slow. Great results cannot be achieved at once, and we must be satisfied to advance in life as we walk. Step by step, de Master says that to know how to wait is the great secret of success. We must sow before we can reap, and often have to wait long, content meanwhile to look patiently forward in hope. the fruit best worth waiting for, often ripening the slowest. but time and patience says the Eastern proverb, change the mulberry leaf to satin to wait patiently, however, men must work cheerfully. cheerfulness is an excellent working quality imparting great elasticity to the character. As a bishop has said, temper is nine-tenths of Christianity, so are cheerfulness and diligence nine-tenths of practical wisdom. They are the life and soul of success, as well as of happiness, perhaps the very highest pleasure in life, consisting in clear, brisk, conscious working, energy, confidence, and every other good quality mainly depending upon it sydney smith when labouring as a parish priest at faustin le clay in yorkshire though he did not feel himself to be in his proper element went cheerfully to work in the firm determination to do his best i am resolved he said to like it and reconcile myself to it which is more manly than to feign myself above it and to send up complaints by the post of being thrown away and being desolate and such like trash so dr hook when leaving leeds for a new sphere of labour said Wherever I may be, I shall, by God's blessing, do with my might what my hand findeth to do, and if I do not find work, I shall make it. Laborers, for the public good especially, have to work long and patiently, often uncheered by the prospect of immediate recompense or result. The seeds they sow sometimes lie hidden under the winter's snow, and before the spring comes the husbandman may have gone to his rest. It is not every public worker who, like Rowland Hill, sees his great idea bring forth fruit in his lifetime. Adam Smith sowed the seeds of a great social amelioration in that dingy old university of Glasgow where he so long labored, and laid the foundations of his wealth of nations. But seventy years passed before his work bore substantial fruits, nor indeed are they all gathered in yet. Nothing can compensate for the loss of hope in a man it entirely changes the character. How can I work? How can I be happy? said a great but miserable thinker, when I have lost all hope. One of the most cheerful and courageous, because one of the most hopeful of workers, was Carey the missionary, when in India it was no uncommon thing for him to weary out three pundits who officiated as his clerks in one day, he himself taking rest only in change of employment. Carey, the son of a shoemaker, was supported in his labors by Ward, the son of a carpenter, and Marsham, the son of a weaver. By their labors a magnificent college was erected at Serampore. sixteen flourishing stations were established, the Bible was translated into sixteen languages, and the seeds were sown of a beneficent moral revolution in British India. Carey was never ashamed of the humbleness of his origin. On one occasion, when at the governor-general's table, he overheard an officer opposite him asking another, loud enough to be heard, whether Carey had not once been a shoemaker. No, sir, exclaimed Carey immediately, only a cobbler. An eminently characteristic anecdote has been told of his perseverance as a boy. When climbing a tree one day, his foot slipped and he fell to the ground, breaking his leg by the fall. He was confined to his bed for weeks, but when he recovered and was able to walk without support, the very first thing he did was go and climb that tree Carey had need of this sort of dauntless courage for the great missionary work of his life and nobly and resolutely he did it it was a maxim of dr young the philosopher that any man can do what any other man has done and it is unquestionable that he himself never recoiled from any trials to which he determined to subject himself It is related of him that the first time he mounted a horse, he was in company with the grandson of Mr. Barclay of Urie, the well-known sportsman, when the horseman who preceded them leapt a high fence. Young wished to imitate him, but fell off his horse in the attempt. Without saying a word, he remounted, made a second effort, and was again unsuccessful, but this time he was not thrown further than onto the horse's neck, to which he clung. At the third trial he succeeded and cleared the fence. The story of Timur the Tartar learning a lesson of perseverance under adversity from the spider is well known. Not less interesting is the anecdote of Audubon, the American ornithologist, as related by himself. An accident, he says, which happened to two hundred of my original drawings, nearly put a stop to my researches in ornithology. I shall relate it merely to show how far enthusiasm, for by no other name can I call my perseverance, may enable the preserver of nature to surmount the most disheartening difficulties. I left the village of Henderson in Kentucky, situated on the banks of the Ohio, where I resided for several years, to proceed to Philadelphia on business. I looked to my drawings before my departure, placed them carefully in a wooden box, and gave them in charge of a relative, with injunctions to see that no injury should happen to them. My absence was of several months, and when I returned, after having enjoyed the pleasures of home for a few days, I inquired after my box and what I was pleased to call my treasure. The box was produced and opened, but reader, feel for me, a pair of Norway rats had taken possession of the hull and reared a young family among the gnawed bits of paper, which but a month previous represented nearly a thousand inhabitants of the air. The burning beat which instantly rushed through my brain was too great to be endured without affecting my whole nervous system. I slept for several nights, and the days passed like days of oblivion, until the animal powers being recalled into action through the strength of my constitution. I took up my gun, my notebook, and my pencils, and went forth to the woods as gaily as if nothing had happened. I felt pleased that I might now make better drawings than before and ere a period not exceeding three years had elapsed my portfolio was again filled the accidental destruction of sir isaac newton's papers by his little dog diamond upsetting a lighted taper upon his desk by which the elaborate calculations of many years were in a moment destroyed is a well-known anecdote and need not be repeated it is said that the loss caused the philosopher such profound grief that it seriously injured his health and impaired his understanding An accident of a somewhat similar kind happened to the manuscript of Mr. Carlyle's first volume of his French Revolution. He had lent the manuscript to a literary neighbor to peruse. By some mischance, it had been left lying on the parlor floor and became forgotten. Weeks ran on, and the historian sent for his work, the printers being loud for copy. Inquiries were made, and it was found that the maid of all work, finding what she conceived to be a bundle of waste paper on the floor, had used it to light the kitchen and parlor fires with. Such was the answer returned to Mr. Carlyle, and his feelings may be imagined. There was, however, no help for him but to set resolutely to work to rewrite the book, and he turned to and did it. He had no draft, and was compelled to rake up from his memory facts, ideas, and expressions which had been long since dismissed. The composition of the book in the first instance had been a work of pleasure, The rewriting of it a second time was one of pain and anguish almost beyond belief. That he persevered and finished the volume under such circumstances affords an instance of determination of purpose which has seldom been surpassed. The lives of eminent inventors are eminently illustrative of the same quality of perseverance. George Stevenson, when addressing young men, was accustomed to sum up his best advice to them in the words, Do as I have done. persevere." He had worked at the improvement of his locomotive for some 15 years before achieving his decisive victory at Rainhill, and Watt was engaged for some 30 years upon the condensing engine before he brought it to perfection. But there are equally striking illustrations of perseverance to be found in every other branch of science, art, and industry. Perhaps one of the most interesting is that connected with the disentombment of the Nineveh marbles and the discovery of the long-lost cuneiform or arrow-headed character in which the inscriptions on them are written a kind of writing which had been lost to the world since the period of the macedonian conquest of persia an intelligent cadet of the east india company stationed at kermanshah in persia had observed the curious cuneiform inscriptions on the old monuments in the neighbourhood so old that all historical traces of them had been lost and among the inscriptions which he copied was that on the celebrated rock of Behistun, a perpendicular rock rising abruptly some 1,700 feet from the plain, the lower part bearing inscriptions for the space of about 300 feet in three languages, Persian, Scythian, and Assyrian. Comparison of the known with the unknown, of the language which survived with the language that had been lost, enabled this cadet to acquire some knowledge of the cuneiform character, and even to form an alphabet. Mr., afterwards Sir Henry Rawlinson, sent his tracings home for examination. No professors in colleges as yet knew anything of the cuneiform character, but there was a ci clerk of the East India House, a modest, unknown man of the name of Norris, who had made this little understood subject his study, to whom the tracings were submitted, and so accurate was his knowledge that though he had never seen the Behistun Rock, he pronounced that the cadet had not copied the puzzling inscription with proper exactness. Rawlinson, who was still in the neighborhood of the Rock, compared his copy with the original and found that Norris was right, and by further comparison and careful study, the knowledge of the cuneiform writing was thus greatly advanced. But to make the learning of these two self-taught men of avail, a third laborer was necessary in order to supply them with material for the exercise of their skill. Such a laborer presented himself in the person of Austin Layard, originally an articled clerk in the office of a London solicitor. One would scarcely have expected to find in these three men, a cadet, an India House clerk, and a lawyer's clerk, the discoverers of a forgotten language and of the buried history of Babylon. Yet it was so. Layard was a youth of only twenty-two, traveling in the east when he was possessed with a desire to penetrate the regions beyond the Euphrates accompanied by a single companion, trusting to his arms for protection, and what was better, to his cheerfulness, politeness, and chivalrous bearing, he passed safely amidst tribes at deadly war with each other, and after the lapse of many years, with comparatively slender means at his command, but aided by application and perseverance, resolute will and purpose, and almost sublime patience, borne up throughout by his passionate enthusiasm for discovery and research, he succeeded in laying bare and digging up an amount of historical treasures the like of which has probably never before been collected by the industry of any one man not less than two miles of bas-reliefs were thus brought to light by mr layard the selection of these valuable antiquities now placed in the british museum was found so curiously corroborative of the scriptural records of events which occurred some three thousand years ago that they burst upon the world almost like a new revelation. And the story of the disentombment of these remarkable works, as told by Mr. Layard himself in his Monuments of Nineveh, will always be regarded as one of the most charming and unaffected records which we possess of individual enterprise, industry, and energy. End of section nine. Recording by Colleen McMahon.